Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And good morning and welcome to Talk Money. Today's program, one of the things that we get a lot of questions about is Social Security. How do you become eligible for Social Security retirement benefits? When should you start receiving benefits? And there are other benefits besides retirement. What are they? Well, all those are important questions that you've asked, but every person under age 40 wants to know, will Social Security still be available when I retire? All of these are great questions for our expert on Social Security, Kurt Zarnowski. He is with us this morning of Zarnowski Consulting. He's a frequent guest on Talk Money. You do not want to miss his comments this morning. How much does college education cost? How do I pay for it? Well, those are questions that you've asked, regardless of age. College costs is a concern to most every person that we're talking to, especially if you have children. If you are preparing for college next year, or you have a new grandbaby, or maybe a new baby, this is a topic that is not limited to one particular life stage. It's for everybody. Parents, grandparents, students, want-to-be students, all know it is important to plan early. Stay with us, because Frank Lacarica is going to share with us some ways that uh, we're going to talk about college funding, getting an education with little or no debt. From our Did You Know files, here's some interesting information. This is in from the National Health Service in England. 4.1 million Brits were waiting to be admitted to a hospital in England that to have non-urgent surgery. That's in September the 30th of 2018. That's 4.1 million. Now, that non-urgent is cataract surgery, hip replacement, things like that. That's the highest number of citizens waiting for surgery since August of 2007. I'd like to interview some of those people waiting for that type of surgery. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Census Bureau says, that's the United States Census Bureau says, that we're not changing much when it comes to owners and renters. 111 million households that existed in the United States in 1231 uh, of 2008, that was split between 68% and 32% between almost 75 million owners and 36 million renters. Well, as of 1231 8, 2018, 122 million households in the United States, their split 65-35 between 80 million owners and 43 million renters. Not much change since 2008. And finally, the worst performing stock in the S&P 500 index in 2018 lost 67% last year. That's the worst performing stock. That same stock is ranked number one among all stocks in the index this year. That's as of February the 28th. It's up 67.1%. Ha! 
Can you take it? Well, what we're trying to say is past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. To find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Like us on Facebook. We would appreciate it. Coming up, Kurt Zarnowski, Social Security, all you ever wanted to know but were afraid to ask. And Frank LaCarica, he's going to be talking about college funding, getting an education with little or no debt. How can you do that? Stay with us. You'll find out. Frank Lacarica is going to tell us. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and you're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990, FM 107.9. This is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securing Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securing Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. All right. For those of you that are asking, where in the world did you come up with those statistics about a stock that literally was the worst performing stock last year? It's down 67%. And the first two months of this year, it's up 67%. I want to thank my research people from BTN Research. They do a phenomenal job for us. We appreciate that. I didn't make it up. I'm just telling you the facts, the real facts. And here's a guy that just does nothing but the facts. And I appreciate him being on the program. Mr. Kurt Zarnowski of Zarnowski Consulting. He is our expert when it comes to Social Security. Welcome to the program, sir. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to be back with you. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and I and you hope you are doing well at the same time. I know you're a little colder than I am, even though this morning my commute was about 25 degrees. Well, you know, I, I wish it were 25 degrees here. And on top of that, <laughs> we got 15 inches of snow here on Monday, and uh, it's... Uh, Winter is not letting go. Not letting okay. go anytime soon. I hear you. I hear you. Well, Kurt, you always do a wonderful job, and I really just enjoy spending time with you, especially with a topic that is dear to you and to me, because bottom line is it's one of the leading number of questions that we get is about Social Security, and we have them loaded up for you today. And some, I think you're just, you know, you walk them through, you, but you help us understand. And the first one that I think is so important, and so many people ask the question, when should you start receiving retirement benefits? And the answer is, beats me. (laughs) Here's the thing. I knew that's what you would say. I know. That's a question I get all the time. And I always say to folks, it's really an individual decision. You have to factor in a bunch of things, which we'll touch on. But I say, before you can make that informed decision, you have to understand the basic principle, which is, In making this decision, you start by knowing what Social Security calls your full retirement age. And when the program started back in 1935, full retirement age was the month you turned age 65. It was that for everyone without exception. But starting in 1983, Congress changed the law, increased full retirement age for Social Security purposes for anyone born 1938 or later. Increase has gradually been phased in over time. Now, for a big chunk of the baby boomers, anyone born between 1943 and 1954, full retirement age is the month to turn age 66. But it's important to remind folks it continues to increase beyond that. And on a current law, it tops out anyone born 1960 or later, Social Security full retirement age is the month you turn age 67. Now, 
collecting at full retirement age isn't someone's only choice, isn't their only option, but you need to start by knowing what that month is because a lot of features of the program flow from at least having reached full retirement age. But in terms of collecting, regardless of what your full retirement age is, you can start as early as age 62 if you choose to do so. But here's the thing. Social Security, as I like to remind folks, it's a social insurance program. Congress has built certain social goals into it, and one is a hope that everyone ends up with roughly the same amount of lifetime benefits, regardless of when they start to collect them. And so, under the rules of the program, you have to start taking your payments before you have hit that full retirement age. Then now, because you're starting sooner, in theory, you'll be collecting for a longer period of time, you're going to find that your monthly payment amount gets reduced. How much a reduction, Jim? Well, it's roughly half a percent per month for each month prior to full retirement age that you opt to collect. Half percent per month, about a 6% per year reduction by starting early. And people need to understand it's a permanent reduction. Another one of those myths I've encountered, and I assume you have as well, is too many folks mistakenly think, yeah, I know I'll start early, I'll get less, but as soon as I hit my full retirement age, my payment will go up. Uh Uh-uh. Permanent reduction, the idea being starting earlier, you'll be collecting for a longer period of time, so you're given less than an individual monthly basis. Full retirement age, that's when you get 100% of what your work and earnings entitle you to receive. But among the options you have are to wait past full retirement age before starting, if that makes sense. And with that social insurance idea in place, well, if you opt to defer past full retirement age, Now, by starting later, in theory, then, you'll be collecting for a shorter period of time. So by all rights, your monthly amount ought to be increased if you wait. And it is. These are referred to as delayed retirement credits. And for each month past your full retirement age you defer, you'll find that your payment amount is now permanently increased by two-thirds of a percent. That two-thirds percent per month increase translates into an 8% per year increase by waiting, but you don't have to not collect for a full year to accrue these delayed retirement credits. For each month you defer, your benefit is permanently increased. But the key thing is, Jim, these delayed retirement credits only accrue from full retirement age until age 70. Now, you never have to take your Social Security payments. Not like there's a required minimum distribution or anything like that. But if you opt to defer from full retirement age until age 70, you'll find that your payment amount has been increased by that two-thirds percent for however many months you don't collect. But there are no additional increases in your payment if you opt to defer past that point. So in terms of visualizing, I say think about it as a continuum. You can start as early as 62. Makes no sense to wait past age 70 recognizing you start right at the month you hit your full retirement age, you get 100% of your benefit. You start prior to that, you get a lower amount for the rest of your life. You wait beyond that, you get a higher amount for the rest of your life. So it's a question of, from the individual's perspective, what makes the most sense? You should be thinking about health, longevity. Are you working? Do you need the money, other assets and things like that? But as I said at the outset, it's an individual decision as to what makes the most sense, I just try and help people understand what they can do because only deciding what they should do, it's their choice. But I always say, if you don't understand what you can do, 
you're in no position to decide what you should do. Uh, that's well said, and I think a lot of people struggle with that, but you walked us through that. So those of you that were taking notes, I'm sure you've um, got a pretty good understanding that it is an individual decision, and Kurt's giving us the specifics of how to walk through that. Kurt, thank you so much for that. Here's the thought, though, when I when I hear you, you talk about that. There is no certain answer that would be just a blanket answer for everybody. It is specifically, you're saying, individual. And that's key for everybody to understand that. Oh, absolutely. Now, there is a very simple piece of information. If you have it, makes the decision clear. That's when are you going to die? And uh, <laughs> last time I checked, Jim, we don't have that information. No, so, we yeah, don't. you're making an informed decision, factoring in a bunch of things. And then I say to folks, though, once you make the decision, move on. You could spend the rest of your life second guessing yourself. But ultimately, unless you know, and it is a longevity decision in the end, Unless you know that for certain, which you don't, then all you can do is make this informed decision. Once you've made it, move on. You've got other things to think about. Uh, if you just tuned in, my guest, Kurt Zarnowski, Zarnowski Consulting. He is a frequent guest of ours. We're talking about Social Security and retirement benefits, and we've just gone through when should you take it. But now, Kurt, here's the second question that we get a lot. If I decide to do it and let's just say I choose 66, full retirement age, or I wait to 70, it doesn't make any difference. Can my spouse, what about spouses, divorced spouses, widows, when can they collect benefits? Sure. And uh, as I've talked about on this program before, Social Security is really a family protection program. Um, Not only provides income for the worker who was paid into the system, but it provides additional money for family members as well. Let's talk about spousal benefits first. Spousal benefits are what Social Security refers to when both members of the couple are alive. So typically the old model of the American economy was the Leave it to Beaver model where Ward Cleaver worked, June Cleaver was the stay-at-home mom. The program's absolutely gender neutral, but for ease of discussion today, Jim, we'll assume the husband is the higher earner and the wife has the lower earnings. What the law says is, Ward Cleaver, the breadwinner, he'll get a benefit based on whatever his work activity was. You know, wait a second, Kurt, I hate to interrupt you. You realize by using Ward Cleaver, you and I know who that is, but you've eliminated half of my audience. (laughs) Well, like they can Google it. (laughs) Okay, I just want to, (laughs) I got it. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm thinking, who in the world is going to, you know, there's a lot of people. I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about the husband and the wife, the husband being the breadwinner and the wife being the stay-at-home mom. That's kind of what we're talking about. That is. And uh, what Social Security says is the husband, again, totally gender neutral, works equally well either way. But for our example, the husband's a higher earner. He gets his benefit. His wife is going to be eligible to receive at spouse's full retirement age 50% of the husband's full retirement age payment amount. Now, for the wife to collect, the husband has to be collecting. That's a change since about three years ago because in the past, the husband had reached full retirement age. He could apply, ask to have payments suspended, and Social Security would be able to pay that spousal benefit, but since April of 2016, no, the only way the spouse collects is if the husband's collecting. But it's based on 50% of the husband's full retirement age amount. Oh, yeah. Or the wife's own, one or the other, whichever one is higher. And that's an important consideration. Now, since the 50s, housewives, women have entered the workforce, earned a Social Security payment 
based on their own work activity. And if that exceeds 50% of the husband's full retirement age amount, that's all they collect. Now, key thing here, too, full retirement age, the spouse gets the full 50%. Spouse can collect earlier, no earlier than age 62, but the same concept. They start to collect before hitting full retirement age. They get less. Payments reduce. But spousal benefits, 50% of the breadwinner's full retirement age amount or the individual's own, one or the other. You don't get both at once. Let's talk quickly about survivor benefits, widows and widowers. And this is what Social Security refers to as Ward Cleaver or the breadwinner has passed away. What's June Cleaver or the surviving spouse eligible to collect? Well, here, now is going to be eligible to collect 100% of what the deceased individual receiving the time he passed away. Oh, yeah, still, or her own, one or the other at a time. You don't get both payments at once. But the important thing to note is, in terms of spousal benefits, it's based on 50% of the full retirement age amount, so that even if the husband has deferred and is accruing delayed retirement credits, spousal payments based solely on 50% of what he would have received at full retirement age. But in cases of widows and widowers, having accrued delayed retirement credits, having deferred, does mean that the survivor payment is going to be higher because it's going to be based on 100% of what the deceased was receiving at the time. In our example, he passed away. What about divorced spouses? Well, basically the law says, as a divorced spouse, if the marriage lasted at least 10 years, the divorced spouse is unmarried, then basically the regular rules apply. That as that divorced spouse gonna be eligible to collect 50% of her ex-husband's full retirement age amount, or her own, one or the other, and then the ex-husband passes away, treated as a divorced widow, eligible for 100% of what the ex was collecting the time he passed away. So full range of protection, whether we're talking survivor benefits, spousal benefits, divorced spousal benefits, it's going to be based on the work record of the, um, in our example, husband or the individual's own, one or the other, not both payments at once. Okay, let's let's make sure we understand then. We've gone through this idea of when should I start, and you said it was pretty much up to the individual, just know all the facts. Spouses, divorce spouses, and widows or widowers can collect benefits. That's important for all of us to know. So let me ask this, and I guess this is a question that's come up that, that recently we had just asked, and I, I really didn't know the answer. I thought I did, but the more I've thought about it, I need to get the expert in your opinion. When I file at 65 my Medicare and I'm preparing to collect Social Security within my full retirement age the next couple of years, but I don't have a birth certificate. It was destroyed in a fire. It was um, I was not born in this country. I am a citizen. I have a passport. But if I don't have a birth certificate, what happens, Kurt? This is a question. I We don't know the answer. We're looking to the expert. Give us an idea. Well, most of the time, social, if someone doesn't have a public record of birth or some type of religious record of birth, then, you know, Social Security can cobble together based on other documents that are available and make a date of birth determination. So it's not an insurmountable problem, but certainly a birth certificate, a public record or baptismal certificate, religious record, that's the primary source of evidence for establishing date of birth. But if they're not available for one reason or another, and Social Security has dealt with this issue throughout its entire history, cobbling together 
other sources of information and making a determination if, you know, all of these other sources agree, then then that that's what Social Security is going to establish as the date of birth. Okay, so Social Security is going to stay. Okay, that's a good question. But, yeah, well, you know, whatever, if you have school records, if you have a passport, you know, this, that, or the other thing, you know, it's like a document dump. Everything you got, they'll take a look at it and uh, make a determination. Make a determination. Okay, that's, we thought the passport would be enough, but I said, hey, well, wait a second, I got this guy, he can, he knows the answer. So there we go. That's the answer we're going to go with. We'll stay, we'll kind of keep that in our minds and uh, share that with people as they ask. Coming back, when we do, I want to ask this question because so many people say, all right, does work impact my collecting the benefits and how do I plan? That's what I want to ask when we come back after this break is when I work, if I'm going to work, should I have waited till 66 full retirement to do that? Or can I retire early? Those are questions that we get. Kurt Zarnowski is our expert. He's going to give us the answers. We've got just one more question and that's it. When he comes back, we get the expert. We tip to the well and we dive in. This is the man that knows the stuff. You're listening to Jim Shoemaker, my guest, Kurt Zarnowski of Zarnowski Consulting. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securing Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securing Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, my guest, frequent guest of ours, and always so good to have him on the program, Kurt Zarnowski of Zarnowski Consulting. And uh, Kurt, again, you continue to just just lay it out so effectively for us to understand it. It is always complicated, and I don't know why we get so many questions about Social Security and why it's so complicated, but it seems like we get caught in the weeds, and you do a great job of peeling the onion back and allowing us to understand it. And the question that we get is, does I know work, it's kind of let me word it the way it's asked, I know working impacts my Social Security benefits. But do I not want to work in addition to getting my Social Security? Is it going to be that big of an issue, that big of a problem? That's kind of how it comes to us. We're asking you. Sure. And and I guess the answer is, well, to answer the question, I always say to folks, here's another area where you need to know what your full retirement age is. Because under the rules of the program, once you have reached your full retirement age, you can work and earn as much as you'd like and collect Social Security benefits at the same time. So from full retirement age on, no earnings limitation whatsoever. But if you're looking to collect benefits prior to attaining your full retirement age, you need to understand how work impacts your ability to collect. Now. 2019, for example, if you're under full retirement age, you're allowed to make up to $17,640 without any loss of benefits whatsoever, $17,640 or less, and you can collect Social Security benefits full payment at the same time. Now, what counts towards that $17,640, Jim? Just two things, wages or net income from self-employment, earned income only. So 401k proceeds, bank interest, dividends, a pension, lottery winnings. None of that counts towards that. Earned income only. 
Now, what if you make over that, though? Well, it doesn't mean you can't collect at all, necessarily. But Social Security then is required to start holding back $1 in benefit payments for each $2 that you're over the threshold, one for two. So depending on how much you're making, you may not be able to collect even if you want to. But again, at full retirement age, that earnings limitation goes away, and you can collect while working and making as much as you want. Now, people often ask, well, I'm retired. I'm going back to work. I don't have to pay Social Security tax on my earnings, do I? Well, the answer is, if you're in a job covered by Social Security, you certainly will, which is good news for the folks at Social Security because they can use the money. But there's a potential benefit to you of that work. Because as we talked on prior shows, your benefit is based on an average of your highest 35 years of work under the Social Security program. And it's your high 35, regardless of when they occur. And so, even if you're retired, if you're paying into the system, if the earnings that you have for a particular year are higher than the lowest of the 35 that Social Security had been using to calculate your benefit, well, the great news is, end of the year, you file your tax return, Social Security does a match, they will automatically recompute your benefit. Drop out the lowest of the years, plug in that new higher year, and it will result in a benefit increase for you for the rest of your life. And this ability to increase your payment through additional work, it continues forever. Those delayed retirement credits we talked about, yeah, they stop at 70. No bump past age 70 by not collecting. But no matter how old you are, if you're working, paying into the system, and your earnings are higher than the lowest of your 35 years, your benefit's going to go up year over year, no matter how old you are. And frankly, the other bit of good news about working, it never really hurts. So your high-priced executive been in retirement, take a part-time job at the local golf course, driving the beer cart around, make a couple thousand bucks. Well, chances are that couple thousand dollars is going to be lower than the lowest of your 35 years. So what happens to your payment amount going forward? Nothing. stays the same because it's always based on your highest 35 years of work. So I always like to say I think good things can come to those who pe- to, to people who wait. I think good things can also come to those who work because full retirement age on, working and earning, doesn't impact you whatsoever, and you can always potentially increase your payment because of those additional earnings, and you're never going to reduce it. That, that sounds great. I, that's, I like the way you explain that. Last question. It's always a part of the show because we always get it. I got it last Thursday. I mean, I'm sitting around the room, and he said, I know you're going to have Kurt on. I'd like for you to ask. I want to hear him answer it one more time. He's 35 years old. Will Social Security still be available? When he so I like absolutely. So I like to answer the question in two ways. First of all, he needs to understand while there are legitimate reasons why he's concerned about the program in the future, and I'll touch on that in a second. He also needs to recognize that the program is there for him today. As we talked about on prior shows, there's disability benefits for folks at any age. There are survivor benefit payments akin to life insurance. If he has a family passes away, leaving behind kids under the age of eighteen those kids are going to receive a monthly Social Security payment right up until the age of 18. So the program is there for younger folks today in the form of the disability and survivor insurance protection that people tend to overlook. But in terms of the longer-range issue about retirement, I always like to remind folks, you need to focus on the fact Social Security's primary source of income is payroll tax dollars from employers, employees, and people who are self-employed. I get the Concern all the time from younger folks, well, there's not going to be anything there for me down the road. Well, 
absent a complete and total collapse of the United States economy so that nobody anywhere is working, Social Security is always going to have a revenue stream of some sort based on the payroll taxes collected from workers, employers, and people who are self-employed. So it's never going to be at the point there's no money there whatsoever. Issue confronting the system, and each year the trustees report tries to project 75 years into the future, that trustees report from 2018 says, as currently constituted, assuming no changes to the program whatsoever, Social Security is thought to have enough money to cover 100% of promised benefits through the end of the year 2034. Beginning the following year, though, trustees report says Social Security is not going to have any money whatsoever. They anticipated to have enough money from those payroll taxes to cover 79% of benefits going forward. And again, that's assuming no action on the part of Congress to address this shortfall in the next 18 years or so. So don't ever fall prey to thinking that there's not going to be anything there. Absent some changes on the part of Congress to close, and I always like to remind folks, you're not talking about a 100% funding gap. You're talking about a 21% funding gap between now and the year 2035. So I think something's going to happen on the part of Congress. program's far too important to let it just continue to slide willy-nilly down the ice patch. But don't ever fall in, you know, to that younger and any younger workers out there, don't fall into the trap of thinking it's not going to be there. It's, going to, it's there for you today through the Survivor and Disability Program, which everybody hopes you're not going to need, but stuff happens. But it will absolutely be there for you in the future. That's a great answer. Always a great answer. My guest, Kurt Zarnowski, Zarnowski, Zarnowski Consulting. Boy, my tongue is tied up this morning. I appreciate you, Kurt. Thanks so much, man. You always do a great job for us. Looking forward to having you on again. We'll do it, and you know it. It's always good. Thank you, sir. All right, Jim. Be well. Take care. Stay you warm. Too. Have a great day. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, we got Frank Lacarica, and he's going to talk with us about college funding. Stay with us because he's going to give us some education ideas between how to get there and get your education with little or no debt. It's a great thought process. He's got the answers. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and you're listening to Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. It is often said that ideas are ahead of their time. This was certainly the case with those of Memphis businessman Clarence Saunders. The idea of a self-service grocery store complete with shopping carts, aisle displays, refrigerators, and multiple checkout stands is a concept we take for granted today. But this approach was revolutionary in 1916, when Saunders opened the first Piggly Wiggly store on Jefferson Street. Convinced that the traditional layout of grocery stores often led to their failure, Saunders patented a new model, which helped customers view all the available choices before deciding what to buy. What Saunders wanted in return was cash and payment rather than credit. This sound business model led to the rapid success of the Piggly Wiggly franchise, which grew to over 2,500 stores nationwide during the Great Depression. Although Saunders himself had to declare bankruptcy in 1923 after selling his stake in Piggly Wiggly at a heavy loss of nearly $40 million and was forced to sell his unfinished Pink Palace mansion to the city of Memphis, his ideas not only changed the way America went to the supermarket, but also influenced how many other businesses organized their manufacturing and customer relations systems. In the inner corridors of the Pink Palace today, 
a life-size model of the first Piggly Wiggly store, still pays tribute to the legacy of Saunders, a visionary who is truly before his time. This has been another Mid-South History Moment. Brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. Jim Shoemaker and Frank Lakerica are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, welcome back. We are going to cover a subject that everybody that has a child or, you know, a baby, grandbaby, or you're thinking about being a student, you want to be a student, you've got college education in your kind of in your thoughts, your vision, and you want to get an education. And yet we all know that one of the biggest problems we have in our country today is the amount of debt that is being created as a result of Wanting to go to college. So I've asked Frank to come in. He's a financial planner at the office. He does a very good job in consulting with people, working them through the process of understanding how they go about planning for that future college education need. They start early. If the earlier you start, the better off you'll be. But he's got some ideas for us just in case maybe you didn't start as early as you should have started. So Welcome, Frank, to the program. Happy to be back, Jim. I appreciate you having me on. Let me ask you this. I want to. We're going to start right off the bat because it is a. It, it, you know, when I went to school, it, it seemed to be an enormous amount of money it cost to go through school. My dad had a very good college plan for us. He was very for me, not for my sister, but for me. He was very straight up front. You pay for a semester, I'll pay for a semester. You pay for. You don't pay for a semester. You. I don't. Pay. It was simple. You know, it was that was my college. I guess you'd say scholarship. Scholarship program, you know, from that standpoint. You had one. Yeah, I had one. I had one. <laughs> but how much does college cost today? Uh, last year, at the end of 2018, uh, the annual survey of colleges, uh, your average four-year degree uh, at an in-state public university was a little over $83,000 a year. Um, if you were... Out of state, you were paying $145,000 a year. And if you were at a private institution, your Vanderbilts, uh, you're looking at almost $188,000 a year. I, I'm sitting here overwhelmed with that number. Greg, you, mean, you, want to, you know what I'm saying? I mean, all of a sudden, you think somewhere between eighty dollars and $180,000 a year. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's the cost of a four-year. Four year, four year, yeah. Yeah, I misunderstood. That's no, still, no, over, no. still overwhelms. <laughs> might have, might have given some people a heart attack. Maybe that's. A, and I know inflation is increasing that number, and it's going up. And I mean, you just look at that. That comes from. I think you said that you'd done some research with the annual survey of colleges. The College Board. It, these were uh, as of the end of 2018, and and these costs include you know tuition, fees, room, and board. So okay, it's, so it's all of it included, right. and it is the four year cost. Not, it's a four year cost, yeah. not. Per year cost. Like I just, you know, I just, you know, I'm just, hey, I'm just paying attention. I'm trying to pay attention anyway. So, all right, I'm looking at it. Let's just say it's an $85,000 cost, and that's mm-hmm. including tuition fees, room and board, and that comes from the annual survey of colleges, and that's the reality is that's looking at the big picture. You might find something cheaper. Right. But you can definitely find something more expensive. So, 
if I know that's going to cost me that, how do I go about paying for it? Uh, there's there's four ways to to, to save for college. You're, you've got your your Section five two nine plans, your five twenty nines. Everyone's probably heard of those. You've got Coverdell education savings accounts, just a Coverdell, UGMAs and UPMAs, and then there's a permanent yeah, life UGMA, insurance. UGMA, UGMA, that, that didn't, I don't know, what's an UGMA? A uniform gift to minors and then trust to minors. Act. Okay, so gift to minors, I'm right. making a gift to, to a minor child. Mm-hmm. That's correct, and it, it it's 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 a gift for them. You're hoping they use it for college, but you know it. it they they have control. So okay, so we'll when they talk hit eight, some more about that, right? And then the last one, uh, permanent life insurance. It's it's a it's a vehicle that you can use to save for college, and and there's some benefits to to doing it that way. All right. So if we start going through this, I guess there's some things that you have to consider. Whatever you're choosing, and I guess I want to go through that, whether we go through the process of choosing an UCMA or a 529, a permanent life, or or I guess one of the playing ways I could do it is just pay for it out of my pocket when it gets there, to do like my dad did. You pay for a year, and then I pay for a year, mm-hmm. semester, semester. But the reality is, I guess I want to know, what should I be looking for when I choose a plan? Uh, you want to, uh, there's there's a couple kind of deciding factors. Control, you want to know who controls the account now, and more importantly, who controls the account later. Uh, you want flexibility, who can contribute, how much, for what purpose. Uh, you want to know. Uh, well, let me, let me stop you for a second. You're saying control. Who mm-hmm. controls it now? You or the child? Correct. It, well, when when they become age of majority, 18, 21, depending on the state, uh, do you still control those funds or are the funds now the, the, the property of the child to be used for education, a car, a house, a ring, a anything combo, they want anything to. they want? To, yeah. Anything. So, so, so control is something every parent needs to think. Is, is it, does it make a difference? I, I think it does. Uh, when, when consulting with, with parents, it absolutely does. Uh, I know, you know, when I was 18, 19, I, I had great intentions, but they didn't always come to fruition. So making sure that you're, you're, you're saving for college, that the funds are used for that purpose is a big deal. So control, absolutely. Is, is, is a okay. Now, what was the second one you said that we should flexibility? What is that? What do you mean by that? Uh, what what who can contribute? How much? What's it used for? You know, the, the flexibility of the of the dollars that you're saving for that education later on down the road. Okay, so again, the, when you talk about flexibility, I guess that's very important. Extremely you just important. Don't know what the future holds. No. And so, as you think through that, are they going to attend college or they decide not to? So having control and flexibility makes a lot of sense as we talk today, uh, specifically when you're trying to choose a plan, whether it's the Section 529 plan, Coverdale, UGMAs, or whatever you said, mm. and, and permanent life insurance. Having control of the dollars, is it you or the child? Is it important? And then you don't know the future, so as much flexibility. As much flexibility Is there anything else that you need to be looking uh, at? Taxation. Uh, you want to look at, at contributions. Are they tax-deductible, tax-deferred? How will the distributions be taxed? Uh, financial aid. Uh, assuming you can qualify, will there be an impact on the amount of financial aid that you can receive? Okay, so, so when you think about taxation, do you make a decision based on taxation, or do you just know what it is? Do you, is there a reason? Would taxation funnel you into one decision more than another, or, or your thoughts from that? It, it could. Uh, it, it Again, it, it depends on, it, it could be state-specific type All deals. All right, let me ask you this. 529 plans mm-hmm. are tax-deductible if the state has an income tax. Yeah, Mississippi, Arkansas. Arkansas. Not not Tennessee. It's not a big deal. We don't have a state income tax. So that's not as a significant as of a 
uh, consideration when regarding 529s here in Tennessee. But for our Mississippi and our Arkansas listeners, a 529 plan, when you're thinking about taxation, that the dollars contributed to a 529 would be tax deductible against their income tax. Against their the income state tax. income tax. Yep. And, 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 and over 30 states do have a state income tax. We just, the ones that we're closest to are Mississippi okay. and Arkansas. But Tennessee does not. Everybody do needs not. to keep that in mind. Yep. You mentioned financial aid. Just mm-hmm. Go ahead with that. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's do this. When we come back, I want to start with financial aid because okay. that is a real biggie for a lot of people. You mm-hmm. don't want to start a plan and it kills the ability for you to get financial aid. And for a lot of people, financial aid is critical. It's available. We'll talk a little bit about it. If you just tuned in, my guest, Frank Lacarica, we're talking about college funding, how to go to college with little or no debt. It's possible. You just got to do some planning. You got to think about it. And if you happen to have a new baby or grandbaby, now's the time to do that. Don't wait till they're 17 and asking you, where am I going to college or can I go to college? It's better to ask, where am I going to college? Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Podcasts for Talk Money are available for iOS mobile devices in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. A 529 plan is a tax advantage investment program designed to help pay for qualified education expenses. Participation in a 529 plan does not guarantee that the contributions and investment returns will be adequate to cover education expenses. Contributors to the plan assume all investment risk, including the potential for loss of principal and any penalties for non-educational withdrawals. Your state of residence may offer state tax advantages to residents who participate in the in-state plan, subject to meeting certain conditions or requirements. You may miss out on certain tax advantages should you choose another state's 529 plan. Any state-based benefits should be one of many appropriately weighted factors to be considered in making an investment decision. You should consult with your financial, tax, or other advisor to learn more about how your state-based benefits, including any limitations, would apply to your specific circumstances. You may also wish to contact your home state's 529 plan program administrator to learn more about the benefits that might be available to you by investing in the in-state plan. And now, back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Okay, we watch it, Greg, as he's falling out of the floor. He had to deliver that. He had to deliver it in a hurry. I don't know how he got through it. I mean, he got through it, though. Give him a hand. I mean, hey, great job. You know, we do have to cover a lot of compliance issues because we're registered investment advisors. And the key is, bottom line is, as investment guys, we we really do want to disclose and be as transparent as possible. And so we thank Greg for reading that. And, and, you know, I mean, he's now he's getting up off the floor. He finally got it done. He's breathing hard. Way to go. Way to go. But we're talking about college funding, how to go to college with little or no debt, or if you just end up having to borrow money, you know, let's just work through that process too. But here's the thing. Frank Lacarica is going through us very systematically some ideas of what we should be thinking about, but there's some characteristics when you're doing this planning that you need to know and not take them for granted. He's covered a couple. First of all, let's make sure we understand something. You're talking about somewhere between eighty dollars and $100,000 for a four-year college cost. That's including tuition, fees, room, and board. That's from the annual survey of colleges. So we didn't make that number up. We just didn't reach up in the sky and pull it down. That's an expensive, an enormous amount of money, and a lot of people end up having to borrow the money. So how can you pay for it? Frank went through it, said 529 plans, covered L education. He talked about a Uniform Gift to Minors Act or Uniform Trust to Minors Act. He's talked about permanent life insurance. He mentioned that. We're going to come back and cover a couple of those, or you can borrow the money. We're trying to help you not 
have to borrow the money. Here's a couple of characteristics that he's already covered. Control. Who controls the account now and in the future? You or your child? Who is that? That needs to be decided. You need to think through that process. Flexibility. Who can or cannot contribute? Can a grandparent contribute? Can can a child be a part of this growing thing? And what happens if the child is not going to go to college? Flexibility is important. And what if they want to attend a specific school? And you thought, well, that's not where we had planned. Do you have enough flexibility to make changes? And then he mentioned before the break taxation. If you live in the states of Arkansas and Mississippi and have a state income tax and you do a 529 plan, it's a tax deduction. You need to know that. It's tax deferred. And in the state of Tennessee, we don't have an income tax. You don't you don't get a tax deduction, but you still get to grow if it's a 529 plan, tax deferred. And so how will these distributions be taxed? Are you going to have to pay taxes? Well, those are things he's going to cover in just a second, but you need to ask those questions. Now, we have three more, and I want to make sure that we cover these characteristics. Financial aid, you were just about to talk about that, Frank. <clears throat> yes, uh, some uh, one of the considerations is when if you apply for financial aid, what uh, types of uh, college education savings vehicles are counted ag- uh, against uh, what you would qualify for? So now financial aid meaning you need to you need to know that before you before you. Before Go you, into plan. Before you, you apply. Be, yep. Okay, so take that into consideration. If you're mm-hmm. listening, write that down. If you're going to use a particular plan, know what it does to financial aid. Growth and accumulation. Uh, what are the what are the prospects for the uh, accumulation inside of the vehicle that you choose to fund college? Uh, obviously, there's uh, there's different uh, investment options inside uh, of the different vehicles, and which one makes the most sense for you? So making that decision is important. So. I guess, is there any other characteristics that are critical for us? Uh, grandparents, more than probably people my age, but estate planning. Um, you know, their, their uh, strategies will not reduce your take stat, uh, estate taxes, and others offer significant estate planning benefits. So there, there's, there's an estate planning piece there for grandparents. All right, you've covered some characteristics. Now, we have, we have run out of time, Frank. I mean, literally, we did not get into the specifics of a 529 plan. I'm going to have you back on. We'll go through this. I mean, I want to to specifically, I think these characteristics are so important that we discuss them. If you had to wrap it up and say, of those five, six characteristics, which one do you consider to be the most important? Uh, Control. Uh, for me, it's control. Uh, I, if if you're going through the the process of saving for college, the the in my mind, the, the control, making sure that those funds are used for the purpose which they were saved, is the most important to me. So whether it's looking at the Section Five Two Nine plan, a Coverdale, UGMA, UTMA, permanent insurance, mm-hmm. control, control. You want make sure you maintain control. I think that's critical for people to know. So control, flexibility, taxation, estate planning, financial aid, those are all important Mm -hmm. characteristics for when you choose to do something for a college education plan, know what you're doing. You've been listening, of course, to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. My guest, Frank Lacarica, if you'd like to talk with him personally, call him at 757-5757. We hope you've enjoyed today's program. As always, we thank you for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to Talk Money at ShoemakerFinancial.com. To find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to the iTunes store and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. 
Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker and Frank Lakerica are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. <laughs>